Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Your experiences lead to your passions, not that your passions lead to your experiences. So you can be doing anything in your life. And if you're paying careful attention, you start um, realizing there are opportunities for you to make a difference and for you to really have an impact. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, 
Your business is always at your fingertips. Sina, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so, you know, I uh, came across you uh, through the work of yours that I've read uh, in various publications and, of course, through the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader series, which I, I happen to be a big fan of. And I'm just really, really curious about, you know, the work that you do. You seem to me like somebody who's a linchpin of our educational system, and that's why I wanted to have you here. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, uh, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to this sort of unusual view and uh, perspective? on education that you seem to have. <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, my story is somewhat convoluted, as probably most people uh, are. Um, I started my career as a neuroscientist. I uh, did my undergraduate work in neuroscience where I crafted my own major, and then I came to Stanford for my PhD in neuroscience, and I always expected that I would be uh, a scientist. But um, I realized when I was in the lab that I really wanted my the product of my work to not just be research papers. I really wanted to have things get out into the world. In fact, it's kind of interesting that that's my new book. It's focused on getting ideas out of your head and into the world. You know, that was my frustration way back when I was a graduate student was, gosh, I really want to have a bigger impact. And so I used to go hang out at the uh, business school when I was at Stanford and sit in the back of the room in the strategy classes trying to get a sense of how you did this. Well, my life then took you know, some interesting paths. I was on the original team for the Tech Museum in San, in San Jose. Um, I was a management consultant for a couple of years at Booz Allen. Um, after I was there for a couple of years, I uh, started a family, and that lifestyle was not conducive to being a consultant and being a new mom. So I left and I wrote my first book. And my first book was on the chemistry of cooking. It's called The Epicurean Laboratory. Mm. And that book, um, I started writing it actually when I was in grad school because I was fascinated by what was happening in my kitchen and had no idea what was actually going on from a scientific perspective. And so I made a list of all the questions I had and decided I should try to find the answers. Now, back in those days, the book came out in 1991. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you know, there wasn't such a, a wealth of information about the chemistry of cooking that there is today. And so I figured I had to write a book. So the long story short, I ended up writing this book when I was pregnant. And after it came out, I said, you've got to be kidding. There's got to be a better way to market books. Have you ever <laughs> written a book? Have you ever written um, a book? I just got a book deal with Penguin, so I'm in the process of, of doing okay. it. And I've self-published a book. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know that, you know, especially in those days before uh -huh. there was social media, you know, publishers basically left the book on the doorstep and kind of waited for people to find it. You know, it was sort of like leaving the baby there and hoping someone would, would, would discover it. And uh, I got somewhat frustrated and decided to start my first company. And so it was a company that was called Book Browser, which was a precursor to Amazon. And um, it was designed, it was before the web, it was a kiosk-based system for bookstores. And it was designed to match books with buyers. And it's interesting, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I did a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. But I was quite successful early on. Essentially, I... I did all my customer development. I had no money to spend. So I did all my customer development first. I got all the publishers to agree that if I built this product, they would buy the, the space on it. Essentially, publishers paid per title per month to have their books listed in the system. And I got all the bookstores to commit to having this system in their stores if I built it. So I had all my customers lined up before I even started. And um, so anyway, I built that company, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but essentially I had set a goal for myself of building a company and selling it in two years. I wanted to prove I could do that, mm -hmm. and guess what? That's what I did. But it was so early. I mean, it was such a huge missed opportunity because I sold it, and a year later, Netscape started. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is what we need to do. We need to put this online. That solves all the problems. And the, now the fellow who owned the company didn't want to do that. Mm. He didn't want to compete with his customers for who were independent booksellers. So anyway, it's a long story. I left there. I became a multimedia producer at Compaq. We were designing kids' multimedia games. Uh, that place actually exploded, totally exploded. I left. I went back to writing books. I wrote a dozen kids' books. And after my son was you know, really launched in school, I decided I wanted to go back to work. I went and the rest is history because 16 years ago, I went to Stanford to help my wonderful colleague, Tom Byers, build the 
Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And I went from being the assistant director to being the director to being the executive director. And a couple of years ago, they made me a real professor. So for the last 16 years, I've really been focused uh, both in the classroom and meeting with executives and, and entrepreneurs, really focused on how do, we, how do we really foster innovation and entrepreneurship. So I hope you didn't that story wasn't too long for you. No, no, actually, there's, there's plenty more that I want to dig into. But one of the, the big questions that I have for you is uh, that moment of realization that you wanted to have a bigger impact. And I'm really interested in why you had the realization so early in your life, because I feel like so many people don't. Uh, you know, it's I mean, I, I, I really I couldn't have come up with any of those kinds of realizations when I was that young. Yeah, well, first of all, I, let me sort of do, put another spin on it. When I was in the lab, I loved thinking about the science. I loved the big ideas, but I didn't love the tactical, you know, experience of being in the lab all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so I really felt like, boy, if you instantly made me the department chair, I'd be super happy. <laughs> I don't really, I just want to like work my way up. And, you know, I watched my colleagues who spent all their time just writing grants. So the whole lifestyle of being a, a bench scientist was not a great match for me. And I really did love the big ideas and the looking at the landscape from that perspective as opposed to the tiny little, you know, um, experiments that one does when one is in the laboratory. Hmm. Well, you're exposed to people that are that age on almost a daily basis. And I'm really interested in, you know, what kinds of potential missteps and mishaps and mismatches in terms of what they think they want their life to be. uh, Do you see when you see these sort of young and incredibly hungry people? Yeah, it's there's some really interesting uh, characteristics. And uh, we can sort of break it down into lots of different categories. Uh, they're those students who come in and have their life planned for the next 50 years. <laughs> I can absolutely point to specific students who come to my office with a roadmap. And you look at them and you say, where is the room in this for serendipity? Mm-hmm. You know, where is the room in here for, uh, for the possibility of, of stumbling upon something that's really exciting to you that's not on this path? And uh, that's really shakes them because their life so far has been such that they, uh, you know, they really want a roadmap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's one extreme. The other extreme is those people who are just they're afraid that they don't have anything they're passionate about. And they're searching deep inside of themselves for their passions and they don't realize that their passions actually follow their engagement, not the other way around. Mm. And this is super important. This is one of the insights I, I share in this in this book, Inside Out, is that your experiences lead to your passions, not that your passions lead to your experiences. So you can be doing anything in your life. And if you're paying careful attention, you start um, realizing there are opportunities for you to make a difference and for you to really have an impact. But you'd never know that until you actually got out there. And this is why many, many of our successful students, many, and I could you know, list examples, um, finish in our programs. And then it's five years later that they decide to start a company. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, gee, give us an example you know, of people who start companies when they're in school. And we say, wait, please don't look at that. <laughs> because you know, the things that they're going to come up with are going to be really incremental and small. It's only once they've gotten out in the work world and are actually immersed in industry, mm-hmm. they're really going to see the opportunities where they can have an impact. So those are two examples of things, you know, that those who are afraid, you know, who want a roadmap, those who feel that they're not passionate. And a third category is those people who are so afraid to fail. Um, they are, um, they've done everything right. They look at the world as a place where there's one right answer. Uh And so when they get out of school, guess what? There's not one right answer. And they don't know what that should look like. And they are afraid that if they do something wrong, that they're going to be in trouble, as opposed to understanding that life is messy. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of stumbling along the way, and all of those provide data that get you to the next step. Okay, so I want to talk about all three of those in a, a bit more depth. Uh, one is the people with the roadmap. And it's funny because I know you tweeted the the article that I wrote on Medium about why the greatest work of your life will require a compass, not a map. Yeah. And I'm interested in why you think it is that these people come into this system with a roadmap and are so hell-bent on following it yeah, and how you start to break that. Yeah, well, because that's what they've been taught in school up until then. I mm-hmm. mean, nobody ever criticizes you for getting an A on an exam. Nobody ever criticizes you for going to Stanford or Harvard or Yale or pick your school. Right. Um, 
Nobody ever criticizes you for going to, going to college. Uh-huh. So all of a sudden they get to a point where they get to the, the, the precipice and they're looking out in the world and there's no right answer and no one has taught them how to even find that compass. I mean, mm-hmm. I love that article you wrote. And uh, one of the things that, that I talk about a lot in some of my other books, especially my book I wrote called uh, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, is about the fact that most rules are just recommendations. Hmm. And yet people, and especially young people, are looking for the rules. It's quite funny when I'm teaching undergrads. This happens all the time. I have to break them of the habit of thinking that there's actually a rule that they have to follow and that they get to actually make their own rules. Mm-hmm. And that they're the customer, right? They go into the university and guess what? You know, they get to pick their own path through this experience. It's a choose your own adventure as opposed to a follow someone else's story. Hmm. So, um, the issue that people have is they're afraid that they don't even know how to find their compass. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I really focus on in our classes is uh, helping students look inside themselves, but also to get the experiences that are going to allow them to really figure out what drives them. So one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, that this kind of thinking was not at all a part of the way I was educated. And, you know, I went to that other school across the Bay that you know of and, uh, and and part of me wonders if it's because of the fact that I went to school when I did and times have really changed and it just wasn't possible then. So I'm interested actually in how you start to break this kind of conditioning in adult life because I think plenty of people have kept the conditioning you're talking about and the need for a map long after they've left school. Yeah, so the key is getting out of your comfort zone. And you can do that in really simple ways, right? It doesn't have to be you know jumping out of an airplane. Mm-hmm. You can pick up some books to read that are – in a topic that you haven't le- read before. Um, it's funny, recently I've been doing that myself. Um, I have never been a fan of opera. And <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm going to listen to opera. I'm going to figure out, like, I'm going f- I'm to listen. I'm going to pay attention and see what is in this that people like. And I'm going to figure out if there's something in here like. I'm going to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. So getting, I mean, that's just an example. Get out of your comfort zone. Do something. You know, listen to a different type of music. Travel somewhere that you've never been. Um, introduce yourself to someone in a, you know, and start a conversation. So all of these things really stretch you and allow you to realize, you know, this doesn't really hurt very much. Mm-hmm. Let me try something else that's new. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I, I think that we have this idea that these have to be gargantuan leaps when we say step out of your comfort zone. And yet it's the smallest things that start to cause us to experience the growth that we need to have uh, in order to start making changes in our lives. Exactly. And um, I discuss this in, in detail in Inside Out, mm-hmm. is that whole creative process starts with motivation that leads to experimentation. Hmm. And those little, a little bit of motivation can lead to little experiments. You know, think of them as prototypes or even prototypes. I don't know if you've heard that term. Mm-mm. I have a colleague, um, Alberto Savoya, who invented that term, prototype, which is sort of a pre-prototype. And the idea of doing really little experiments, therefore, if they don't work out, you know, really there's no big loss. Hmm. It, this is a huge issue that you're bringing up is that people, so here's the thing. Someone comes up with an idea. I want to start a company and they, um, imagine their name in lights on this big building. They look at Google and they don't realize this started with, you know, a couple people in a, in an office or a garage. Mm-hmm. And so that, but they, we read in the newspaper about these people have been so successful and they don't always see the root of all the little experiments and the failures along the way to get to that big success. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I jokingly say all I did was plug a microphone into a laptop and start recording MP3 files. And here we are seven years later. Right. And another example of that would be, you know, Sal Khan with Khan. Uh-huh. You know, I, I spoke with him extensively about, um, about his process of getting the, the organization launched. And um, he also went through the same process, right? It started out as an experiment while he had a day job. Mm-hmm. And it built enough momentum that he said, you know what, there's actually something here. And that's when he finally left his job to launch the venture. But it was done on the side as a series of experiments. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's let's talk about this whole fear of failure idea um, and why it's such a, a like integral part of our culture. I mean, I come from a culture, being Indian, where that whole fear of failure has been ingrained into me since I was old enough to get a letter grade. Like we didn't get our report cards put on fridges. We got asked why we got an A minus. And I mean, you being at Stanford, I'm sure you're exposed to people like this on a daily basis. 
so I'm really interested in breaking that conditioning. And you know, I, I remember actually where I first came across your work. Now that we're talking about this, I remember you you had a, uh, I think it was on a Fast Company article about creating a resume of your failures. So I actually did that exercise. Yeah, that's one of my favorite favorite exercises is having students write failure resumes, uh, resumes of all their biggest screw ups personal, professional, and academic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at first, of course, you can imagine they're really delighted to do this. <laughs> but I get letters from people from years in the future, you know, years in the future who say, thank you, thank you, thank you. They continue to do this, even if they don't do it, physically write it down. It's something that's in their mind. Mm -hmm. I certainly do it myself. It's, you know, if I have a day where I've really messed up or I really am disappointed with something, you know, a choice I made, instead of spending my time beating myself up, I go, okay, that's something in my failure resume. And what do I learn from it? That's the key. Right. What do I learn from it? It's a fascinating to think about the fact that kids, we expect kids to make mistakes, right? Nobody gets up and walks the first time they try. Nobody mm -hmm. gets up and rides a bicycle the first time. Why do we expect adults who are doing super complicated things to do something really hard without any errors the first time through. And so it's a very strange thing that happens. Um, and, and what you talked about with you know, the grades and your family celebrating your successes and mm -hmm. perfect, uh, really giving you a hard time. One of the things that I am very, very uh, passionate about is helping people um, tap into their internal motivation as opposed to their external motivation. In fact, in the classes I teach, I will never talk about grades. Mm -hmm. I tell the students, if you ever ask me about your grade, I'm going to get very upset. I assume that you are motivated to do a great job. I am going to put in everything I have into this course to create an amazing experience for you. I'm assuming that you're going to put in the same level of engagement, and um, I'm sure it's going to all work out. So let's not focus on grades. Let's focus on the experience that we're all going to have. Um, one of the things I, I talk about in my book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, is the idea that at the beginning of the first class, I tell the students to never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. And I say this once, but it's an amazing thing that this concept is so sticky. People, in fact, I have, I'm sitting in my office, I have a poster that one of the students made for me that mm -hmm. says never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. I have students show me that on the back of their, you know, iPods, they have carved never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. People use it as the screensaver for their computer. And the reason is they are waiting for someone to give that instruction to them. They're waiting for someone to say, do your very best. Don't do just enough to get an A. Mm -hmm. Right. If you do just enough to get an A, you basically just satisfice. You do. Okay, you got an A. But what's, I mean, where's the moonshot in that? <laughs> so I really try to encourage students to, to really think of everything they do as an opportunity to be their very, very best. Okay, so I have a couple of questions around this. Okay. Uh, why do you think that this kind of thinking and this mindset isn't universal throughout our education system. Again, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to have you here is I see you as somebody as, who is a linchpin in our education system. Like, I wish I had had you as a teacher when I was at Berkeley. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. And then the other thing is, what is it that keeps these people waiting to be fabulous? Why are they waiting for a nod of approval? Yeah, this, there's a huge problem with our education system. And the problem has to do with the way we measure things, right? That, that, Teachers and schools uh, have to have some metrics, and they use grades. And it, there are some things that are easy to measure, right? If I give you a multiple-choice exam, that's going to be an easy way for me to test whether you know the information. If I give an essay exam, it's going to be a little more subjective, right? If I just have to watch what you're going to do in 10 years from now, that feels impossible, mm -hmm. Right? And so what happens is we're measuring the things that aren't relevant. There's a great Einstein quote, and I wish I had it perfectly, but it's something to the effect of all things that count can't be counted, and all things that, not all things that can be counted count. Hmm. And that's really profound. I mean, how do you measure love? How do you measure ethics? How do you measure entrepreneurship or creativity? You know, so... The fact is, it's really hard to measure whether your students have great values, whether they're good people, whether they're um, ethical, whether they're really creative. And therefore, we choose not to measure those things because they're hard to measure. Mm. 
right? And so this is this is the problem is that so we end up in the situation where we measure the things that are easy to measure and those might not be the things that we actually really value in the long run. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, so I think that makes a perfect setup to to talk about our next question. You know, one of the things you said earlier was that you did a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons, and you've made reference to this book, you know, what I wish I knew in my twenties. And part of me is is interested in one: Do you think that you could have known those things in your twenties without having gone through the things you did and made the mistakes you didn't? And what were the mistakes, and what were the yeah, lessons? Really, really good question. Really good question. Uh, yeah, could I? So when I say what I wish I knew when I was twenty, could I actually have known those things when I was twenty? Well, I think I could have. I think if someone had taught me these things, they're not so complicated. But our system is not set up to allow you to learn these things. Um, there, you know, so some of the lessons in that book are about, or, or the, the, the insights from that book, is that you know most rules are recommendations. Well, we're we're in schools and we're environments where they make the rules. And we get tricked into thinking that those are the rules. Well, I have never gotten a job or never even gotten into school, you know, in a way that anyone else did. I have always found another way around to get where I want to go. But most people find the barriers that are put in front of them, you know, oh, wow, I can't get around that. Whereas really, you know, you can just turn around and go the other direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what you, this is why I loved your article about a compass as opposed to a map, Right. That, that give me a compass, tell me where I, sh- where I, w- I help me figure out where I want to go, guess what, then I'm going to figure out how to get there. Mm-hmm. If my goal was to get from here to New York, how many ways are for me to get from here to New York? An infinite number of ways. 
right? Someone might not tell me I should hitchhike, but that's certainly an option. Might be more interesting than driving. It might be. I might meet some really interesting people. Yeah. Maybe I take all the little side roads. That's going to open up some interesting opportunities. Of course, you know, the the flight might be canceled, but that shouldn't get in the way. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we can teach people earlier to be uh, much more flexible in their thinking, to realize that they have much more agency in their life and that they um, are responsible for making their own luck, that they need to... um, reframe things. That's what I spend most of the time in my classes teaching, is teaching people how to reframe the problems that are in uh, their lives. Uh, do you want me to give you just a simple yeah, example? Yeah, absolutely. A simple example. So this is one I like to use because it's so poignant and easy to understand. Um, let's say we have a friend who has a birthday next week. And we say, hey, let's plan a party. Let's brainstorm to come up with the best birthday party for the friend. Sound like a good idea? Yeah. Super. Okay, so we're going to brainstorm this. If I change one word in that prompt to let's plan a birthday party, to let's plan a birthday celebration, what happened to the set of solutions? Wow. (laughs) It expanded dramatically. Yeah. Right? What if I had said, let's not plan a birthday party or a celebration, let's find the best way to mark this person's birthday? Wow. Again, we've now totally expanded the set of solutions. And the fact is, the answer was baked into the question. When we said that we were going to plan a party, it assumed it was a party. Mm-hmm. When we said it was a celebration, we assumed it was that. The questions we ask are the frame into which the answer will fall. And so really what we need to do is framestorm before we brainstorm. Mm-hmm. We need to actually do a brainstorm around the question we're asking before we even look at the solutions. And this is one of the things that people make a bit mistake or that one of the things that can be learned and that we can uh, teach people younger in their lives is to question the questions they're even asking. Okay, so I have a couple of questions about that. Uh, one is applying this later in adult life when we've become so conditioned into asking a certain set of questions, uh-huh. how we bring that about. Uh, and then the other question that raises for me, I mean, since we're talking about, you know, earlier and sort of younger and formative years for you in all this journey. And, and again, you know, I, I keep asking people these questions and I, I wonder half the time if I get an answer because I'm asking it or because it's a universal truth. Have there been any sort of rock bottom, dark night of the soul experiences throughout this for you? Oh, my God. So which question do you want me to answer? Let's go with the first one first and then the second one. OK, the second one was how do we I think the question was about. Basically taking that, you know, question, the idea of, of changing the questions once we've been so conditioned yeah. um, to not see alternatives and opportunities. Yeah. So I have been fortunate enough to teach several online classes. And uh, so with, you know, thousands of people around the world and the participants in these classes are adults. I mean, they range from, you know, the average is like 25, but to, you know, 85 years old. And so these are these are grownups who are out of school. And not only do they thrive with the type of projects that I give, uh, they are hungry for them. They say this has changed the way they approach everything in their life. And so what I do is I teach specific tools for doing this. And they're not complicated, but they do force you to think differently. Like, how do you reframe the problem? How do you challenge assumptions? How do you connect and combine ideas? How do you work with people effectively on creative teams? So... um, by giving them some guidance on how to do this and then giving them um, opportunities. So so oftentimes the projects I give are are quite playful. I want to come up with things that are relevant for people around the world. So I might give them a simple object like a loaf of bread or a handful of rubber bands um, and say you need to create as much value as possible, value measured in any way you want, starting with this, this item. So it forces them to look at the things around them from, with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. So if I have a loaf of bread, and the reason I picked a loaf of bread is I figured, you know, everyone in every culture, you know, has a loaf of bread sitting on their table. And I want them, even after the course, every time they see that loaf of bread, to be rem- reminded of all the things that you could do with a loaf of bread. Or every time they're sitting at their desk and see a rubber band, uh-huh. they're reminded that, oh my gosh, you know, look at the infinite number of things that I could do with a rubber band. So the, that's the sort of things, you know, that, that might seem uh, mundane, but the idea is to stretch your thinking um, in, in an everyday way so that when you then approach bigger problems, you're, you're actually prepared to, 
to, to look at those problems in the same way. Hmm. Okay. Um, what about the second question? The dark nard of the soul? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, you know, that is, it depends what you're talking about. I have, uh, I have had many, many challenges along the way and the challenges are personal, professional and academic. Um, you know, and I'm just like everybody else. Um, one of the things I, I made the decision to do, and it was a bit of a risk that I took, but in my new book, uh, Inside Out, I shared the fact that at the end of this last year, I hit bottom and I had to take a month off for medical leave. Mm. And you're wondering, wow, why, how did that even have to do with putting it in the book? But there's a chapter in the book about persistence and about pushing through barriers to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And this is something we always hear about entrepreneurs who keep working and working and working and you know push through all of the, the things that seem like ob- incredible, immovable obstacles. But at some point, you need to know your limit. And that's what I did. I found my limit. You know, I pushed myself so hard that I literally collapsed. I found myself in the emergency room twice in three days. My doctor took one look at me and said, you have to stop. So I realized that we all need to understand our own limitations and to take care of ourselves. You know, there's the old saying, um, put on, you know, your own oxygen mask before you help others. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was so focused on helping everybody else and doing everything everybody else wanted from me me, that I had forgotten about taking care of myself. Yeah, I mean, the reason I asked the question is because, you know, I, I've started to see the, all these articles sort of you make their way around the web about founder depression and all, all the other things yeah. that go on. And, and, you know, part of the reason this is so interesting to me is I, I had a friend who, who happened to also be a Stanford grad student. Uh, and he said, you know, he said, you do something really hard. He said, your entire self-worth is, is based on the fluctuation yes. and performance of the work that you do. Whereas yeah. at a day job, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. In fact, I, when I was a grad student, I used to say that being a PhD student, and I'm going to say an entrepreneur as well, is a perfect model for the onset of manic depression. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not. It is, it is true because when you're so judged by outside things that are outside of your control mm-hmm. and things that um, you feel like they should be under your control. And so you're often in a situation where things are going great and so you feel great and then when things go badly, you feel horrible. Um, yeah, so I, I know that very, very well and had to really, really do some deep soul searching to understand how to deal with that, the, the ups and downs and how to come up with a much, find a calm spot that I could go to when things became uh, very, very difficult. Huh. Because this is hard, actually. I mean, you know, we think of creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship, you read about in the paper, it all looks very romantic. But when you look up close, it is a very hard process to push beyond the expectations, to do things that often other people think are crazy, mm-hmm. and to build a market for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. Have you seen this uh, happen in, in the lives of, of the students that you've taught, like seeing them go through this roller coaster and, oh, and seeing them navigate it? And how, I mean, how, how have you seen them come out of the other side of it better? Yeah. So it's really interesting. And I found that, um, so this last qu- winter quarter is when I um, got sick and had to take time off. And uh, I was teaching, I mean, I was middle of the quarter. And I, I co-teach my classes, so my colleagues were wonderful in terms of filling in when I couldn't be there. But I went to every one of my classes once to talk to the students about what happened to me and how difficult things were and how I was dealing with it. And it ended up being the most meaningful quarter to me and to them. My teaching scores were off the, off the charts. Um, and the letters I got from students thanking me because, you know, you've probably heard about the duck syndrome at Stanford. Do you know about the duck syndrome? I think so. You know, it's where basically on the surface, everybody looks perfectly calm and normal, but underneath <laughs> they're feeling like crazy to stay afloat. Uh-huh. And the, this is, you know, that they realized that they too were dealing with this, you know, that, and many of them said they were really struggling with the same types of things and were so appreciative that I was able to share this and talk about the ways that, uh, and the, that I was thinking about coping with it. In fact, I came up with a metaphor that I shared with them about what really goes on. Do you want me to share with yes, you? Yes, absolutely. So the metaphor is that we're all little sailboats 
sailing around on a little ocean. And the wind comes up and goes down, and the sailboat is perfectly happy um, on, these, on this ocean. And every day it rains to fill up the ocean, and every day it's, the sun comes out and evaporates the water. And this is all well and good if you keep replenishing the ocean, if the rivers keep feeding it, if the rain keeps coming. But at some point, if you don't keep replenishing this ocean, the water level keeps going down. This is a perfect metaphor for the California drought, I guess. The water just keeps going down. And uh, you can convince yourself you're fine because you're just sailing around this ocean and it feels like it's okay, but the cliffs on the side keep getting higher and you keep getting lower. Eventually, you hit bottom. And there's a mountain range underneath this ocean and everybody has a different mountain range. Some people, the top things you hit are depression or anxiety. Other people, it's going to be stomach aches or headaches or getting a sore throat. I mean, the fact is, as soon as you hit bottom, the thing that is your weakest link um, basically becomes manifest. Hmm. And it takes a long time to replenish this ocean. It is not something that happens right away. You need to really, really put effort into replenishing it. And you also need to fix your little damaged sailboat. And uh, I really felt that it took me quite a long time, at least a couple of months before I was able to kind of get back in the water. I can only imagine how that's gone over with like total type A students who are really overachievers in their lives. Yeah, but you know what? What do you think? I, I mean, agree. I mean, I agree completely. They they basically are so appreciative that someone is saying you're not the only one who is who's dealing with this. Uh-huh. And I think we just have to all give ourselves a break. Yeah. Um, you know, there is we need to understand that what we're trying to do is really hard and to um create some balance in our life to, to make sure that we actually stay healthy through the process. Hmm. So I want to ask you a question that uh, a photographer I had had here asked, you know, had mentioned to me, you know, he asks uh, anybody who is a director uh, after they've been an actor, what did they learn about acting uh, from being a director? And I'm curious what you have learned uh, about teaching from your students. Oh gosh, I learned so much from them. I mean, in, in, it's, it's almost overwhelming. I feel as though that's what being a teacher really is. A te- I, for me, if being a teacher is really about being a provocateur. Hmm. I'm the instigator. My job is just, just to come up with really um, interesting challenges. And then I am actually as surprised as they are by the range of solutions they come up with. In fact, I rarely give the same assignment twice. First of all, it keeps me on my toes. I constantly have to be coming up with new ideas for new challenges. But also, um, I don't want to be anchored by what I've seen before. So I'm constantly learning from them. Uh, I'll give you just a simple example. Um, And this one is is a pretty well-known example because it's the opening story in What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And it's about a project I give the students where I give them – I did – in fact, it's quite funny. I'm going to sort of double-click on this for a second. I gave this assignment once. But it um, has sort of gone around the world, and many people give this assignment all the time. And uh, it's, I'll tell you the funny thing about that is then they write to me and ask me about the nuances of the assignment and all the rules. And I say, I didn't have any rules. It was one assignment, which was one sentence. And I just wanted to be surprised by what happened. And I never did it again. Mm. And the assignment was that the students were given $5 and two hours. And their challenge was to make as much money as possible starting with $5 in two hours. Now, I knew that you could do something, right? You could have a car wash or a lemonade stand or, you know, a bake sale, right? So I knew you could do something. There was something you could do. And I really didn't think long and hard about what the possibilities were. So there were the obvious things that people could do with $5 in two hours. But then the students pushed way beyond what I even imagined because the students realized that, Many of the teams realized that the $5 was actually a limitation and that their skills were worth much, much more than that $5. Mm. And so those teams went out and figured out what sort of things they could do in two hours that were worth much more than $5. So setting up a bike tire pumping station in the middle of campus 
and they start at the beginning asking for a dollar, and halfway through they start asking for donations, and after two hours they've made several hundred dollars. Wow. Okay, they're the team that ended up taking pictures at one of the school dances and you know sending it to them, sort of professional photos. Uh-huh. There was a team that made reservations at all the popular restaurants in Palo Alto and started selling the reservations as the times came up. But the team that reframed the whole thing beautifully and went way beyond that realized that the $5 and the two hours were a limitation. And the most valuable thing they had was their three-minute presentation time in class. And they sold that for $650 to a company that wanted to recruit the students. Wow. So the fact is I learn a lot, right? I learned through that experience how – you know, they could really keep pushing. All I had to do was give them a provocative prompt. Uh-huh. Um, this last quarter, I did something, so that seems, you know, sort of fun and a little bit, you know, playful. But this last quarter, we worked on a very profound project uh, looking at the reentry process for people coming out of San Quentin prison. And so the students went to San Quentin. They worked with the, with the um, inmates there. They met with people who were former prisoners they met with parole officers, other people in, the, in, the, in that whole ecosystem, and came up with remarkable ideas about how one might totally redesign that very broken process of people getting out of prison and entering a life of freedom. Hmm. Okay, so two sort of final questions for you. Uh, the first one is, you know, when you look back at the work that you've done, you know, having written kids books, having done all the things you've done around teaching. I mean, would you, do you have any sense of what sort of the underlying thread um, that ties your entire body of work together is? Yeah, I'm very um, curious. In fact, I'd like to teach a class on curiosity. That's something that I've been trying to think about. How might I do that? What would that look like, a class on curiosity? I grew up in a home where curiosity was absolutely uh, uh, celebrated and um, I am constantly um, motivated to ask questions and then figure out what the answers are. Hmm. And so um, it keeps me on my toes. I'm very comfortable being out of my comfort zone. And uh, it's, uh, that, that's really what motivates me, is constantly pushing myself to learn more. You know, people often think that I'm very competitive. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> very driven. I, but I, I'm very driven. Uh-huh. I'm driven to keep pushing myself, but it does not at all have to do with anyone else's expense, at anyone else's expense. And in fact, one of my favorite things is helping other people. If I can help other people, I always do. And uh, as I learned from my mother, who would always say to me, you know, what can I do to be helpful? Um, that's one of my favorite things is, hey, what can I do to be helpful? And really interesting opportunities open when you're open to helping others and when you're curious. Hmm. Well, Tina, this has been really, really great. Uh, so I want to close with my final question, which is how we finish all our interviews uh, at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Ha, ha, ha. What makes someone unmistakable? The thing that comes to my mind is authenticity. You really have to tap into what is really authentic to you And isn't that great that it's different for all people? And that's what makes the world such an interesting place. It's very sad when there are people who are trying to be what they're not. And so um, I I really, really strive to be as authentic as possible. And um, I try to encourage that of my colleagues and my students as well. Well, Tina, uh, this has been just fabulous uh, and very, very thought-provoking and insightful, as I expected it would be. And uh, I I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your insights with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative. You are so wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. You lose, you're exactly right, you lose this connection with your core, your identity, but you don't lose your identity. It's there. You just have to find it. And then when you find that relationship with it, the assets and the skills and the techniques and the, the lessons, everything that you have learned mm. can now be incorporated into that so that you can express your identity. And they, people say that that's finding your voice, right? It's like, oh, you right. found your voice. No, you figured out how to use your voice. 
um, it's never lost. It's never gone. And, and that's the key is that so many people are searching for something that they think is lost. But in reality, what they need to do is learn how to create the skills to communicate with something that's always been there. We revisit one of the year's most riveting conversations with Wes Chapman. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.